So my understanding of the role of school in society and the purpose of schooling, based off of my time here in the Miami Teacher Program, is that the role of school in society, if you look at the mission statement or the goal statement of any given school, that is a statement that they make as a promise to the general society that they work with and are a part of as, hey, this is things we are instilling in our students as part of, as part of their time here with us. And for my time at Bishop Fenwick, there is a mural on the wall, which you'll see below this hyperlink, and it says, live the talons, faith, compassion, integrity, and service. I had the opportunity to work with seniors, juniors, and sophomores, and I can tell you that every last one of those four talons, the faith, the integrity, the compassion, and the service, are things that I saw most every day in one student or another. And I gave opportunities for them to show and live some of these talents in the classroom because in 70 minute block periods, you get these little windows of opportunity and these little vignettes where they can kind of showcase these things. And the kids did amazing jobs with the little opportunities that I gave them to show those talents. And I believe this is an important thing, not just those four talons, but the overall goal statement or the mission statement that each school carries. And I believe it's important because this is what they are telling society is going to be shown in the kids that they are producing and helping mature for society. And that is important because Again, those, the society wants those kids to have the same morals and values that are reflected in that society and see it in those kids, which is why there is a trust with the schools that they will be able to show these things. As far as understanding the purpose of schooling, uh, based off of my time here at Miami, it has always been about the flow of knowledge from one expert to a novice or a group of novices. And my time here at Miami really, I, I can't speak highly enough about the faculty and the staff that I've had the chance to work with and learn from because through most of my high school and middle school, grade school careers, there was always the, I am the teacher, you are the student relationship. And it was very much an all or nothing kind of thing. When I got to Miami, um, while yes, they are professors and yes, they hold a position of power and respect, I also felt comfortable being able to talk to them about the non-academic and the more personal things that were going on in my life and seeking guidance from them, which isn't something I can say I was able to do with my high school professors. And that's why I think my, my perspective on what schooling is has changed because of my time here at Miami. Uh, 
is that it's no longer just, you know, teach, 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 learn, 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 and test. It's more about the flow of knowledge and you know, making more personal connections between the novice and what is being learned rather than just PowerPoints, note packets, and multiple choice tests. That was the kind of education experience I had growing up. It was not the best, but this is the stuff that I really remember. And uh, going to the last question on this prompt, I, I don't know how my perspectives would differ from an individual who went to another school outside of Miami, because each university, whether it's Miami, Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio State, pick any university. Each university works with and has different relationships with the school districts around them. So I think there's too many factors for me to try to account for each and every little difference in perspective between me and someone who went to, I'll say, Ohio State or Bowling Green or Ohio University. There's too many different factors for me to figure out there. So rather than try and figure out why our, our differences exist, we, I think it would be more productive to talk about the experiences that led to them and we can learn from each other rather than try and just draw lines of distinction between me versus you or us versus them. And that is, you know, part of the, the learning process that I've had here at Miami is I've been in classes with people from all over the United States and from across the world. And we all have different perspectives. We all come from different backgrounds, but we were all in the same classroom for the same purpose of making ourselves better. So in classrooms like that, I try not to look at what makes people different. I try to find things that unite because we can achieve more if we look at what we have in common than if we look at what makes us different. And that perspective is something I can truly say uh, came from Dr. Cameron Shriver and Dr. Thomas Misko. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with and learn from both of them. And between the two of them, that is a perspective that started with Shriver in my Native American Histories class, and it was built upon with MISCO in EDT 433. So that's my general understanding of the purpose of schooling, the flow of knowledge from expert to novice, so that you know, the next generation can continue to build off of the generations that came before them. And the role of school to society and in society is to help instill not just a well-rounded education, but a well-rounded citizen for society. That's my understanding, and that is what I am sticking with. Understanding the purpose of schooling and the role of school in society. Talking specifically about the role of the teacher, because teachers are the center point 
of most schools. Um, historically, I believe that the role of the teacher in the classroom has been a educational figure whose main job was to get the content from the class textbook and the whiteboard into the minds of the kids. Speaking specifically to the experiences I had growing up, um, that was pretty much what my uh, pre-K to ninth grade educational experiences was, was here's the content. I'm going to walk us through it once, maybe twice if we have questions. And then there will be note packets and more note packets and more note packets. Um, and that's not a knock on that style of education. It was effective. I learned a lot through that means, but it's not uh, where I think teaching sits in the present. But historically, through the late 90s and in the aughts in which I went to grade school and high school, that was okay for education at the time. Uh, moving forward into the more present tense role of the teacher, I think that uh, possibly because of society changes or changes in the world or what have you, some compounding factors outside of the classroom that change the way the classroom works and the role of the teacher therein. Um, when I started my time at Bishop Fenwick, I thought, great. I know the community in and around the school. I've heard all these great things. People are going to be really invested. It's going to be great. Um, I thought uh, going in, I'd have a chance to prove myself doing a lot of different roles, and boy, was I right. I was everything from a teacher to a counselor to a relationship guru, guru, however that's pronounced, um, and on one occasion I was an assistant coach for a game while my mentor teacher was out on leave. Uh, and not that I minded doing any of those things. I knew it was part of the job, especially working with high schoolers. And some of the experiences I had, I think, are going to be reflective of what other teachers are having in the present tense where we are teaching kids that are a little more scrutinized on social media and they are worried just as much about how they appear online as much as they do in real life if, you know, not more favored towards appearing better online. And I think that's going to change the role of the teacher because I actually kept a, a little tally chart in my first journal of reflections that I had. And uh, the final stats on it was that I was asked to be in six different selfies, a Instagram reel, and one B-reel which I'm still not really sure what that is, but I was asked to be on it. 
Um, and that to me provides a little more evidence to what I was saying that they care more about how they appear online than how they do in real life. And that's going to change how the role of the teacher plays in the classroom because there were lessons, um, specifically one that I call the Banks Chalorette, which is a riff on the Bachelorette TV show, um, where it was a simulation of finding the right bank for you. And um, I made an outline of one of those dating apps that says swipe left or swipe right. And I turned it into something that I could bring into the classroom. And the kids were really receptive of that. Um, I thought it was a good way to show how the relationship between an individual and a bank is so important. And I, it was just one of my better lessons. It, it was definitely top 10 uh, for me. So... It, the digital world changes the physical classroom that I'm going to be teaching in because I don't want there to be some sense of a technological divide or a technology gap between what the students are, are doing and seeing online and what I can bring into the classroom. I like to think I'm slightly more tech savvy than the average uh, teacher out in the field. Um, so I use a lot of online sources like Quizzes, Quizlet, Ducksters, all these other sites. I've got an entire tab just for my websites that I use. And I try and bring these things from the internet and bring them in at a level that they understand. Because the world they're learning in and growing up in is drastically different than the world I grew up in. Um, because... I, I'm still very much used to reading a physical hard copy book. And it was a little different for me to hear that Bishop Fenwick had all digital textbooks. Um, they do still have uh, paperback textbooks, but it was uh, more budget-friendly for them to go with a digital download and have a bunch of digital codes for students to log in and have access to those uh, books online rather than the hard copy textbook. And that one took a little bit of adjusting for me to get used to because, again, I was a little bit kind of doing it the old way where I had the hard textbook and they were doing this all digitally online. Um, took me a couple weeks, but I managed to figure out how to manipulate the online textbook to get out of it what I wanted to bring into the class in conjunction with the other materials because I never really relied solely on the textbook. Um, and that's just a personal philosophy of mine because uh, I try and bring in multiple resources. Uh, I've always said that... Uh, Using only one source creates bias, but using multiple sources helps create perspectives. And I'm much more interested in perspectives and how they manipulate and work those into their own schemas or how their schema rejects or adapts certain things rather than just telling them what to think. 
because I am much more interested in teaching them how to think and to think for themselves rather than saying something robotic like in 1492 Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue you know while that's a nice little kitschy rhyme for history like that's just rote memorization I'm not interested in that I want to see how my kids manipulate and make meaning and connect the meanings of history to their personal lives uh, which is one of the main tenets of myself as a teacher, which is why I've been able to talk about it without looking at my note cards for so long, is because this is stuff that I truly believe. Um, and my time and experiences working not just at Bishop Fenwick, but I also spent time at Middletown Middle School and Baden High School. This was something I tried doing in all three schools. And it was something that I saw some success in, in all three. Because um, I wanted to make stuff interactive. Because not every kid learns just by reading page after page, left and right. Some of them, they got to be interactive. They got to make their own connections. And I think I do a fairly good job of that. Good Lord knows uh, my salon parlor discussion uh, for the Age of Enlightenment. That was definitely a top five lesson for me. And again, I'm in the interest of teaching them how to think and letting them make their own connections rather than telling them what the connection is and how to think about that connection. I've told my students this and I will put it in here now. If the entire world looked like, acted like, and sounded like me every day, the world would be boring. So I encourage them to have common connections, but that connection can be unique to each person. Because I might view Marie Antoinette different than a couple of my kids who really enjoyed the fact that I called her the original version of a Kim Kardashian. And... It's about the personal connections and relating it to their lives rather than me just telling them what the connection is and how to think about it. Um, strolling on to the future constructs on the role of the teacher. To me, the teacher has been and always will be uh, the person from which knowledge flows. So they are a gateway or a resource or a manager or a prompter, sometimes even a coach. They are the person from which the knowledge is flowing. So from me to my students or from my mentor teachers to me or, uh, you know, even from my parents and I to my little cousins when I babysit, you know, it is not necessarily about who's the teacher, who's the learner. It's about the knowledge and how it is flowing and who is it flowing from and who is it flowing to, because that flow can go both ways. Good Lord knows uh, I teach my parents enough about technology and how to, you know, I don't want to say work the internet, but to generalize and summarize it. Um, that's 
how I teach them. And then my parents have taught me everything from how to tie my shoes to how to change the tire on my car. So at any given point, you can be the teacher, you can be the learner, or depending on how, you know, life pans out for you, you could be the subject matter at some point. But getting back to the role of the teacher in the future, um, I had the opportunity to fulfill a lot of different roles and wear a bunch of different hats, not just at Bishop Fenwick, but at Middletown and Baden as well. Uh, I'm happy to have had those roles. I'm excited to see what other roles I can take on. And uh, truthfully, I'm just excited to get out there and and be the best teacher I can be. And it's hard for me to kind of theorize as to what the future of education is going to look like. Because if you'd have asked me that question back in 2017, I would have never have heard of the word Zoom or ever even used it. Now, as I sit here, December 5th of 2022, Zoom has become a major part of my life and a major part of my career here at Miami because I transferred in and my first two semesters were all online via Zoom. I didn't set foot on the campus until last year, truthfully. And, you know, it might have altered uh, my experience through the Miami Teacher Ed program. And that's completely fine because you know what? It changed everyone else's experience that went through the program at the same time too. And I'm thankful that I, I got to have the experience rather than wondering how the experience could have been different. Uh, and that's truthfully speaking from the heart because I've been blessed beyond blessed to attend not just Miami University, but Ohio University as well. I've been blessed to get the great placements I've had and to meet all of the great kids and students and faculty along the way. Um, that's why I'm just happy and I'm very optimistic about the future of the role of the teacher in schools uh, because, you know, we could end up being social media influencers. Good Lord knows I follow a couple of teaching uh, influencers on like Instagram and Facebook because they help give me ideas for my classroom. Um, I think teachers can also uh, be, I don't want to say trendsetters, but they can help start something like if something works well for someone's uh, classroom out in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, that I think I can replicate here in Ohio and someone else replicates out in California or Florida, then we can start trends and we can share the ideas and suddenly uh, a lot more knowledge is flowing, which ties back to what I think the role of the teacher is, is the person who the knowledge is flowing from. So I have learned so many great things from so many different people. I don't even have time to begin to talk about that kind of stuff. But I'm just so excited about getting out there and the future that I have as a teacher and all the great kids that I can't wait to work with. And, you know, my education here at Miami uh, has done a, a great job in preparing me for a lot of things. And 
I'm sure it did a great job, but I also know there's some things that it didn't prepare me for. Um, and those are things that I'm going to figure out as I go out into the field and I get experience and I become a teacher and I become a school figure and I become a trustworthy person for my coworkers, for my students, for the families, for the community. And I'm just excited to get out there. I'm excited to prove who I am and what I can do. I'm excited to, to help my kids learn the ones that I've already had in class and the ones that I have yet to meet. I'm just excited to get out there. And I, I think I sit at a good position um, with the teachers I've had growing up as a student in like kindergarten, middle school, grade school, and high school, I got to see, you know, the stand and deliver sage on the stage kind of approach for years and years. I know how that works. And I think I'm also at a great spot because I've picked up techniques for co-teaching, uh, things like gallery walks, simulations, court cases, mock trials, debate clubs, uh, salon parlor discussions, and there's just so many other lesson plans I could think about. There was half a dozen right off the top of my head that I learned through my time here at Miami. And I'm just excited because I have all these tools and all these great things, and I just can't wait to use them and utilize them for the benefit of my future students. So when I think historically of the role of the learner, I have to base it mostly off of my experience. Growing up, uh, most of my relationships with teachers were a more traditional, somewhat stereotypical, I am the teacher, you are the student uh, relationship. And not that those were necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. They were just what I grew up with. And, you know, I was, I was able to learn that way. They were effective teachers that way. And I learned a lot of good things and general overarching themes. When I think more of the present role of the learner, I have to think about the expansion of the role that I gave my students at Fenwick because I allowed them to choose which way they wanted to be assessed in my world history. Uh, I said, you know, this is what we are doing for the Age of Enlightenment. I said, I have yet to make materials either way but I am making these materials for you guys, so I'm going to let you all choose which way you want to be assessed, and we're going to vote as a class. I said, do we want to do the traditional pen and paper test where you all would receive individualized grades? I said, or do you want to work in groups of three or four in groups that I create and pick for you, and you all would choose a certain topic and a certain philosopher that you present on. 
I forget what the specific margins were, but the overarching theme that the students voted on was to do a group project. And I told them and I gave them a rubric. I said, this is going to be a 75 point assignment. 25 points is just in the research. 25 points is in the presentation and 25 points is in the other aspects of uh, the project and I still have the rubric and if I remember to attach it I will attach it below but that was one example I let them expand their role rather than just being told hey this is what we are doing it's, uh, I expanded I said which way do you guys want to do this I said I can make it either way I have the goals in mind I'm letting you guys choose the tools that we use to assess and I think that overall, you know, was a positive thing for them because getting to choose how they want to do things, you know, gave them a little more pride and maybe a little more incentive to do this. Um, and it was great to give them that opportunity because they all responded really well and they all did amazing presentations which I do have photos of and I will include those and another example I have of expanding the role of the learner is for my personal finance classes we did three units on economics and it was basic stuff like market types um, how money moves in the markets and just very uh, surface level understanding of economics uh, that my mentor teacher gave me the materials for and said this is what we've taught in the past and this is the basis that we're going to use to teach in the future I'm like great fine perfect when it came to the end of that unit 3 test I did change it and I added an additional question at the end and uh, not verbatim here, but it was something to the extent of by placing a number 1 through 9 or 10, indicate the order in which you would like to learn these topics. And it was everything from how to invest, how to pay taxes, uh, credit and debit cards, how do they work and how do they differ, budgeting, life insurances, retirements, how to choose career paths, all of these other things that go into personal finances. And I, truthfully, I created every resource material for these kids as we were going along. And I wanted them to have a say, not just in what we learned, but the order and how we learned these things. Because we were at that point in October where you could start to see some people getting a little bit of fatigue and starting to burn out a little bit. And I figured that letting them have a say in the order of material uh, that we learn things in would help keep them engaged. And um, for the most part, I believe it worked. Because, you know, budgeting, that was one of their favorite things to do. Is I gave them... Uh, 
using the egg of opportunity, I let them pull little pieces of paper that would tell them what their monthly budget is. And up on the board, I had uh, different costs of different things. And, you know, they were like, how am I supposed to pay for car insurance and keep my kid involved in whatever sport it was that they wanted when I only have X amount of money? And I said, that's the point of budgeting. I said, you know, you can't necessarily have everything you want. I said, you guys got to figure out and prioritize what is the most important thing. So what's, what's more important, having, I'll say, car insurance or possibly life insurance? Or is it more important that little Jimmy gets to play basketball this winter? And, you know, the, the, these were hard decisions for some of them to make. And I wanted them to experience that felt difficulty in that expanded role of the learner that I give them. Because, you know, this felt difficulty now and exposing them to how to create a budget, how to stick to a budget, and how to prioritize what needs to be paid for by the budget are life skills that are going to help them down the road when they get to university or they go to trade school or whatever life they get to live once they graduate from Fenwick. And, you know, the expanded role of the learner, specifically with my personal finance, it was a lot more student-led. I had everything from web quests to uh, board games to role-playing simulations to everything to where I put the weight of learning on them so that they would create their own connection with the content rather than me telling them what the content connection is and how it should relate. I let them create their own and I let them experience it because that's part of my teaching philosophy is education through exposure. By me exposing them to these different things, uh, like investing web quests or uh, how to get a perfect match with a bank, uh, that simulation that I ran. Uh, those were great lessons for them, and they were lessons that they were really receptive to because it was active and it was engaging, and most importantly, they had fun learning with some of these. And... That is, you know, one of the things I try to do is not just, you know, get them to learn, but I want them to make personal connections because I want them to see the real life applications of what I'm trying to teach them and how it's going to be shown in, in their lives once they graduate high school. So I, ex I changed the relationship between uh, the teacher and the learner and put more weight of responsibility on the learner because they're terrific kids. I know they are capable of doing everything I, I put in front of them and more. And I think my present understanding of that role of the learner based off of how I was able to shape and construct and build my relationship with them and see all that they were able to achieve. That is my understanding of the present 
uh, construct of the role of the learner is it needs to be more hands-on. It needs to be more interactive and not just every day come in, take notes, and do PowerPoints. Because my goal is to not be that teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where it's just Bueller, Bueller, and he's got notes up on the board and he's asking for you know, some kind of student feedback, but it's obvious that those kids are bored out of their minds. And I think going towards the future constructs of what the role of the learner is, I think that's going to change as school itself changes. Five years ago, none of us had ever heard of Zoom or Microsoft Teams we might have heard of Skype and FaceTime because it was readily available on our phones, but we didn't know it and use it for an educational context on Moss. And, you know, five years from now, teaching could be virtual learning where they get the little VR headsets and they, they are present and in school mentally and their senses are telling them that they're in school but physically their body is still at home you know that might be five years ten years fifteen years down the road and it's hard for me to predict and give my perspectives on the future because you know i could write down what i thought the world was going to look like in 2020 back in 2010 and I could probably say I might have gotten a few things right, but a majority of my predictions would be wrong. And, yeah, like I said, that's what makes it hard for me to provide some, some kind of in-depth answer on what the future of the role of the learner is. Because the physical environment in which we learn might change five years, ten years, fifteen years down the road. And it kind of makes it difficult to provide that answer. And, you know, I, I, I think the role of the learner is going to change and shape and shift to meet the needs of the society that they are going to go into because of, you know, society always changes and the role of the learner and the teacher and the subject matter and all of that is going to change and grow with society. So I might not necessarily know what that future role looks like, but I am happy and excited to be in a position to where I get to see it grow and change and evolve and see the new ways that students can show what they've learned and how it connects to them in real life. So when I think historically about the role of subject matter in the classroom, and I have to think back about the, the subject matter and how I was taught about things uh, when I grew up. And again, I have to say, I grew up in a private Catholic school where my entire grade was never more than 30 kids. And within that, the student body was 99% white. And with that, um, a good majority of the history and social studies that I learned was 
I mean, you, you break it down so that you can understand it at a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade level. And in breaking that down, I think there was also a bit of a whitewashing and sanitizing of it so that we could understand it and not get, you know, too caught up in the gory details of things like the Trail of Tears or um, the Industrial Revolution and how it was like terrible for kids age 10 and under that worked in those factories. And, you know, some of that matter was a little bit whitewashed so that we wouldn't get so caught up in all the details that we forgot the larger narrative. And that is historically how I think about the subject matter is um, just how I grew up with it where, you know, it was broken down, but it was also whitewashed a little bit, and we focused more on big-picture things and not so much the nitty-gritty details. Um, when I think more present-day as to the role of subject matter, um, I'd always try and bring in multiple perspectives of the same event. And one way I do this to kind of warm kids up to the idea of it is... I play the song, It Wasn't Me, by Shaggy. And then immediately following that, I play Carrie Underwood, Before He Cheats. And the reason I bring those two specific songs in is because it talks about the same event of cheating in a relationship. And, you know, it talks about that same thing, but it draws different perspectives of what's going on. And I bring that in as a way to get kids to accept the fact that there is more than one way to look at a certain event or more than one way to look at how things are presented. And I think using those two songs just cracks open the wall of possibilities and lets more opportunities flow through. Because from Carrie Underwood and Shaggy, now I can introduce more complex ideas that they are more receptive of looking at and being critical of, rather than just having them kind of passively accept what is being presented to them, either, you know, in my notes or being presented to them on the five o'clock evening news. And when I present subject matter specifically in my history courses, I try and present things um, from the side of, I'll just use one example, I try and create uh, lessons that are inclusive of things from Napoleon's perspective when he was conquering Austria on his way to establishing the continental system. I try and create, you know, maybe a one-page reading on his thoughts and his perspectives on that. And then I also try and find journals or articles of, from the Austrian perspective of, you know, here, here's Napoleon, he's coming up the road, and, you know, this is what I see, this is what I feel, this is how I think it's going to play out kind of stuff. Because I have long lived and subscribed to the theory that there are three sides to every story. There is my side, there is your side, and there is the truth in between those two. 
and I always try and teach both sides, my side and their side, and I let them contrive and synthesize the truth in between. Because if I only ever teach them one side of an argument, that doesn't create perspective. That creates bias. And creating bias in the subject matter is going to only create bias in how students think about things. I'm not interested in teaching kids what to think. I am far more interested in teaching them how to think, how to think for themselves, and to critically analyze what the source is and how they are presenting the material. Because again, the, the example of cheating that I brought up with Shaggy and Carrie Underwood, both of those are talking about the same thing, but they provide drastically different details and they provide drastically different outcomes as to how things are based off of their perspective. And I think it is to the benefit of the students to have subject matter that comes from different perspectives because it allows them to form a more holistic picture of how history really is. Rather than history as it's been told to them. Because uh, you could pull just about any event, really, in history, and you could find a source from your side and a source from their side and try and contrive something in between. One way I also did this in the classroom was um, post-game interviews because my a good chunk of the kids are either Bengals fans or Browns fans. And earlier, I think it was a Thursday night or a Monday night game that when the Bengals and the Browns play, I was looking at post-game interviews and little snippets that they were saying. And I found a similar play they were talking about with a uh, tipped ball that turned into an interception. And I used those two different perspectives and I brought that into the classroom. I'm like, okay, now that I know I've got them hooked with football, now I can go into the Shaggy and the Carrie Underwood. And now I can lead them into the difference perspectives that uh, specifically Thomas Hobbes and John Locke had when it comes to what king and what the kings and queens during the Tudor and the Stuart monarchies of England were doing because they grew up in that same time period. They experienced the same stuff, but Hobbes and Locke were seeing different points of views on it. And I think that was one of my more effective scaffolding and building towards techniques that I used because, uh, first of all, I just had fun with that lesson. And when I have fun, I like to think the kids have fun too. And that's why I tie it all back to the role of subject matter. In the present day, I try and teach it from different perspectives because taking it from different perspectives creates a more holistic picture than taking it just from one perspective, because one perspective creates bias, in my opinion, because it doesn't address all the possibilities that an event can have. And when it comes to the future on the role of subject matter, um, 
that's again something I can only speculate on because what we get to teach the kids could change from year one to year five to year 15. Heck, it could even change while we are teaching it. Um, and that that's kind of the fun part of the subject matter changing is we get to create new lessons to make new meanings with the kids from one year to the next. And that's part of the reason I'm excited about changing subject matter as well as subject matter that stays the same is I get to have the consistency of subject matter that stays the same from one year to the next, but I also get to change and rework and create new subject matter for the kids that is different from this year to the next year to the next year. And that's, you know, my perspectives on what the role of subject matter is. Uh, as I said, historically, with what I grew up with, the present day, how I kind of brought it into the class with Shaggy and Carrie Underwood, and then those future constructs, you know, they're going to change from one day to the next, because now um, with the role of subject matter, kids can be more in-depth about it, and the way technology is progressing, um, they can do so much more now with the subject matter in 2022 than what I was able to do in a computer lab in the basement of the church building back in 2005 when we had 25 kids but we only had 20 computers that were woefully underpowered and inefficient as compared to the laptops and computers of today. And just the change in technology and the progression of society is also going to change and progress the role of subject matter and I'm just happy and excited to be on the front lines to see how this is going to shape and evolve over time. All right, so this last prompt is asking me to talk about the factors of the school, the classroom, and the neighborhood. When I think of the school, the classroom, and the neighborhood interacting historically, I have to think again back to my time at uh, St. Pete's here in Hamilton where the neighborhood and the school were established decades before I was ever there. Because I believe the main school building was built in the 1800s with the church building uh, being even older than that. Not as in far as like it was built in the 1700s. They were both built in the 1800s, but I think the church was there before and how those classrooms in the school relate to the neighborhood, and then the neighborhood relates back to the school. During my time there, um, I remember Father Bunch lived in the first house whose backyard bumped up against the length of the parking lot, which also doubled as the playground. And I remember there was a gate that he had put in into the backyard so that, you know, in case we ever threw a football over the back fence, we didn't have to go knock on his door. We could just open the gate and, and, and get the ball and go back to playing. I also remember that <clears throat> the families that lived across the road um, some of them may have been retired empty nester homes, 
but I remember there being a lot of older people um, in those homes, both on Ridgelawn and on the side streets. With how the neighborhood related to the school and the classroom, I think that the school building and the church were like one of the very first things that was built in that area of town. And then as the city of Hamilton grew and the population grew, that neighborhood sprung up right alongside it and sprawled outward from the from where the church is. Because the church and the school building are predominantly featured on the corner property and they're not quite at the top of the hill, but they are they're pretty close to the top of the hill. And I think this uh, also helps, you know, with the relationship between the neighborhood to the to the church and the school and the classrooms. And it's a two way street here. And I'm going to just try and talk about that in the next couple minutes. Is that growing up there from first grade to eighth grade, um, I never really had a problem. There never really was an issue with anyone in the neighborhood and in the school uh, because either A, they were all at work during the same time that school was in session, or, you know, they lived far enough away that we never really bothered them. Because if you look at that park and then you look at a map of the city of Hamilton, one block over and a couple blocks down is what's called D Street Park. And it's a little triangular shaped park, but we always used to go there when the weather was nice and we wanted to learn outside or uh, especially at the start and the end of the year, we had these field days where it was just pretty much get the kids out, let them run off some energy. And we never had a problem, never had an issue on the walks over. There was nothing that would have posed a danger or posed a threat to us as kids going to or coming from that park to the building. And I just remember it was an overall positive relationship and all the other factors about, you know, how the neighborhood relates to the to the school and to the classes and to the kids. And then also how the kids and the class and schools relate to the neighborhood. When I think about that same relationship in the present, I have to think of my time at Bishop Fenwick, where the the high school, the address registers as being on State Route 122. And when school is not in session, that is, I believe, a 45 or a 55 mile an hour road. And I did see a couple glimpses of the community coming out to support the school, uh, specifically for the playoff games for football that they had at home. The, a lot of the community members showed up there. And I also saw it um, during the first couple of weeks because uh, there was one 
older gentleman who lives in a ranch across the road and he would every day he would be walking the couple of kids that live in the neighborhood across state route 122 walk them across the two-lane uh, traffic he had the school crossing guard uniform he had the handheld stop sign he had the the vest and the flashing lights he had the whole nine i only saw him a couple of times because i usually got there at seven o'clock for school that started at 8 15 and to me that's just one small way that the neighborhood plays a role in the success of the school because he took it upon himself to make sure those two or three kids got to school safely because they were walking every day I don't know if he did it in the afternoon because I was still in the school building doing some grades or some lesson plannings and whatnot. But I do know that I saw him out there in the mornings uh, building off of that. I think uh, some of the relationships that the classrooms have to the schools uh, with Fenwick, it's kind of unique because as a Catholic high school, you have two distinct communities. You have the physical community that the school resides in, and even though it has a Franklin, Ohio address, if you look at where it is on the map, it is much closer to the Middletown community. So that is one community that I believe they are very responsive to, and they do have some service projects that help out the Middletown community. The second distinct community that they have is what they call the Fenwick family. And encompassing that family are the alumna of the high school, the staff and faculty, the current students, their parents, and extended family, as well as the families of what they call prospective members, which would be middle schoolers who don't know uh, where they want to go for high school, whether they want to go to Fenwick or Alter or Baden or McNick or whatever school uh, their parents feel is best suited for their child. So Fenwick gets to balance these two very distinct communities. And I was at the Fenwick homecoming game because it was a little bit earlier than the other Friday games. And I was still there because I was prepping lesson materials and doing all this other stuff for Monday because I was going out of town that weekend and I knew I wouldn't have time to work on it. So I was doing it all while I was there. That way I could kind of leave it there and then pick it back up on Monday morning when I get back in town. But I stayed late enough to where I could meander into uh, the parking lot as people were starting to arrive for a little bit of tailgating and just reuniting and talking about their days as high school students. And it was when I was talking to some of the people who graduated back in the 80s and 90s, uh, and I was talking to them about, like, you know, what did Fenwick look like back then? Was there anything you guys really remember doing? as students because I was trying to pick their brain as to things I could replicate in the classroom for, for today's kids. And it was in talking 
with them, even though they graduated, I'll say, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that was 30-something years ago, every bit of it. And the way they talk about the schools and the way they fondly remember their time tells me that Fenwick does a great job of keeping that community together, which is why they call it a Fenwick family, because you talk to people from the 80s, 90s, the aughts, teens, and today, and they talk about their time at Fenwick like it was just last year. And to me, that really showed the importance of that relationship between the community and the schools, because there were a couple of um, alumni that I talked to that were also parents of current students. Some of them were students that I have, and some were just students in the building. And uh, hearing how they talk about the school from then until now and seeing how their relationship with that building has changed and the, the people within that building have changed, um, it was something that was really cool to hear. And I think um, I was, I continually developed an identity of what the community was that Fenwick was serving as far as the Fenwick family and a continued idea of what the general Middletown community was that they were serving. Because the lens that I was observing the Middletown community through was the service projects that students did and it would be you know small things like helping clean up the landscaping at the local retirement home or volunteering for a couple hours at a soup kitchen or something similar but it was something that was impactful to the middletown community and when i see that relationship between the students and the communities grow and develop and change, um, you know, that also impacts how I lead and teach in a classroom, because now that's another source and another thing that I can pull from, pull from to relate to the kids, because I was able to relate the hunger that these kids saw in some of the faces of the soup kitchen and related to the hunger that the third estate experienced prior to the French Revolution and making that connection between their content and the community they serve, I think really helped strengthen that material in their mind. And uh, I'm just excited to see how that relationship continues to grow and change, not just for the Middletown community to Fenwick and Fenwick to the Middletown community, but also the high school to the Fenwick Falcon family and also to the family back to the school building. Because like I said, there is just such a love and affection that the alumna have for Bishop Fenwick, and it is very obvious and it is very palpable when you talk to the people that I had the chance to talk to. And that's how it's historically been. That's what it looks like in the present day. When I try and project how this relationship 
between Fenwick and all of these uh, other communities are in the future. I, 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 again, I stutter to think at how the relationship is going to change, but I hope that Fenwick gets the opportunity to continue to expand upon its opportunities to be leaders in the community and to serve uh, more people, not just necessarily in the Middletown community, but other surrounding neighborhood areas as well. And how I relate myself to all of this is as those relationships between the, the classroom students, the school, and the neighborhood and communities all change, we get to change and grow and adapt with it as teachers and as young professionals. And it is part of that changing and adapting that I am looking forward to, as well as I really want to see what the kids can do with the opportunities that are being presented to them by being able to go out and talk with their alumna as well as members of the community 